The Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kaylee Akina is brought to you by the Roland Family Foundation and the Ho Moana Foundation, helping one person at a time. And now here's Kaylee Akina. everybody and welcome to the Grassroot Institute. It is Monday, August the 15th. I'm Kili'i Akina, president of the Grassroot Institute. And as you know, here on Maui, we always love to say Maui no ka'oi. Maui's number one in terms of people, places, beauty, and now free market radio. I'm here with Joe Kent, vice president of research at the Grassroot Institute. Aloha kakahiaka. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, and welcome to Maui's only show dedicated to individual liberty, the free market, and limited accountable government. We've got a great lineup for you. Today on the program, we're going to answer the question, why is it so difficult to get water in upcountry Maui? We'll talk about the water meter list later on in the program. And we'll bring you the news behind the news with Andrew Walden, publisher of the Hawaii Free Press. In addition, an exclusive grassroots report. How can we provide more access to better schools on the island of Maui? Grassroots researcher Aaron Leaf will bring us the story. Also, the Maui bus system on Maui works well, but could it work better? We'll look at this later in the program. And as we know, the Maui hospital transition is a good thing for Maui's people. Uh, but there are still so many obstacles in the way. We'll talk later with Tom Yamachika of the Tax Foundation of Hawaii and learn more. And Hawaii fisheries have hit the limit for catching big-eye tuna. But why does Hawaii keep overfishing its waters? We'll learn more with grassroots researcher Andy Slavin. And as we do every week, we'll listen to another adventure in the life of Jonathan Gullible, a free market odyssey. And we'll talk with author and economist Ken Skulland. Well, to kick things off, water on Maui is hard to come by, especially if you live in upcountry. 1,900 applicants have been waiting to get hooked up to the county water system. Why is it taking so long? Grassroot Research Director Joe Kent will bring us the story. Getting water on Maui isn't easy, especially upcountry. Almost 1,900 applicants have been waiting for years, often decades, to get hooked up to the county water system. This means that they don't have county water and many must collect rainwater instead. Others are simply unable to build on their property because they need to have a connection to the county water system before their building plans are approved. Bobby Patnode will need to wait at least 18 years before she'll be approved for a water meter. My meter originally was intended so that I could bring my mother, who just turned 90, over to the island, and she will not be alive in 18 years. So... Um, that isn't going to work. I do have a couple sons who are already working the land, and um, hopefully in 32 years we'll have meters for them. The Maui Water Department says that the reason it's been so slow is not because of a lack of available water, but instead because of a lack of public sector engineers to do the paperwork. Jace Miyabuchi is the only engineer in the Water Department working on the list. 
He alone must go through mountains of paperwork, building plans, and research for each applicant. The process can take approximately one to two weeks per application, according to Miyabuchi. And approximately how many do we get done in a month? Maybe like five a month, maybe. Council member Gladys Bisa said, I feel frustrated. I've been here almost 10 years. I lived this water meter thing. I'm on that list. I'm in the 700 somethings. I think it's 769 or something like that. And I'm going to be dead before we get a meter because I'm not going to live that long. I doubt it. The county has attempted to hire more engineers, but there are simply no engineers applying for the position, according to Dave Taylor, director of water supply. There is not a single person from outside who applied. So all that's going to happen through the county is we will probably hire somebody for this job, which will create an opening either in our department or a different department, you know, and so on and so forth. Outsourcing the work to private engineers would require a change in the law regarding public employee union contracts. Mr. Taylor said, We're not allowed to outsource work that has been historically done by union employees. In addition, projects approved by the Water Department must also have proper infrastructure in place, which can take a long time to organize. Finally, the water list itself is subject to law, which prevents jumping around the list or grouping similar projects. A project that can be finished in one day must wait for the applicant in front of him, who may take three months. The list, saying one, two, three, is not necessarily geographically linked to where the greatest need is. And that creates the dilemma of what should we do first. If there was some direction on that, I would be more than happy to implement a upcountry pipe upsize program if there was some criteria about what should be first. During testimony, Bobby Patnode said, You know, to me, as a a person sitting there uh, up on Crater Road waiting for my meter, to me it feels like the whole problem we have is the list. The list is the problem. And I know it's a law, but that's what this council is here for, is to fix the laws if they're not working. So could we please entertain the idea that we change the law so that the infrastructure gets built in a planful way instead of going according to the list? Because I think that's what's really causing this whole problem. The county is planning on having an executive session about whether a water list is required at all or whether changing the list could bring up legal challenges. In the meantime, outsourcing the problem may help but will require a change in the law, similar to the Maui Hospital Public-Private Partnership. This kind of change may take years to initiate, but it could benefit many locals on Maui who have been waiting for decades to get a drop of water. For the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, I'm Joe Kent. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelii Akina. In every news piece, there is a story behind the story. Andrew Walden has been finding the truth behind the news. We're going to talk with him today. He's the publisher of Hawaii Free Press. 
Well, we've been watching the privatization of Maui Memorial Hospital. The state legislature and the governor made the decision to allow the private sector to take over its labor operations, thus saving the hospitals. But this has been a long and thorny road. We should have been seeing all operations up and running under Kaiser by now, but that's not taking place. Uh, What's happened in the recent override by the legislature of the governor's attempt to prevent a uh, an extraneous uh, severance package. Well, they've upped the ante. Now it's not just the hospital that's at risk, it's the entire ERS. Well, Tax Foundation, under the leadership of Tom Yamachika, has issued an analysis in which it points out that the ERS itself is now at risk because of the decision of our legislature. Yes, Senate Bill 277, uh, vetoed by Governor Ige, overridden by the legislature. Um, basically uh, mandates that the government, the governor uh, provide a, uh, an illegal deal that would um, violate the um, IRS code. Now, we've already discussed the fact that the workers are getting their jobs back. 95% of them were given jobs by Kaiser, and so they didn't lose them, and 5% decided to retire, and they all get their benefits, but the unions want this $60 million-plus severance package. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, it's a severance package for people who aren't being severed, and the the interesting thing is that uh, the way the bill is structured, it would destroy the ERS, which, of course, would be very damaging to the interests of union members. And so the bill itself is a shavai. It's just um, an empty piece of paper. There's no funding for it, and as I said, it's illegal. So our legislators knew full well that they were putting forth something that was illegal as well as unfunded. So they're not dumb. They did this with purpose. What purpose do they have behind that? Uh, Well, purpose number one was to get it out of their hands. And purpose number two was to kick the can down the road another day in the negotiations, which are still ongoing. Down the road another day. You mean after they're reelected? Perhaps. Now, in the meantime, the the people of Maui are suffering because this deal means the hospital can't really move forward and the labor provider, Kaiser, is getting into a little bit of deep water here uh, in light of the fact that they have to fund all of this without the approval yet. Well, they can't move forward, but they can move backwards. Are there some layoffs taking place because uh, we don't have these this deal tied up properly? Uh, right now, the hospital has 300 vacant positions. Uh, uh, they're talking about closing off various services, including obstetrics, gynecology, uh, mental health. Um, and uh, Avery Chumbly says the losses cannot reach the point of bankruptcy. Now, who's Avery Chumbly? Uh, he's the chairman of the board of the Maui Regional um, uh, Hospital System. So they're watching very carefully their finances, and how how much has this cost them so far, the delay? A lot, millions and millions of dollars. Um, They're looking at a $25 million shortfall for the current year. Uh, The plan was to have the privatization in, in place with Kaiser in control on July the 1st, and so, of course, that didn't happen. And now they're basically spinning their wheels while HGEA and UPW members uh, take as much vacation time as they possibly can.
Now, we were talking earlier about this shell of a bill that is both illegal and unfunded that was passed by the legislature and the governor's veto was overridden. You said that that's part of a negotiation tactic, uh, and I believe you're talking about the current suit that the union leadership uh, has brought with regard to the Maui hospital transition. What's going on here? Well, UPW sued um, the state. Uh, claiming that uh, their contract had been violated. And uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, gave UPW the injunction that it wanted. And there have been a series of extensions. The most recent extension uh, gives them until mid-August to come back with some kind of settlement. And so it's getting very close to the next extension. And what happens if we don't have a settlement by then? Uh, every day this just gets a little bit worse for Maui Memorial. So the legislative maneuver was really to give some negotiating power to the governor, perhaps, in these negotiations? I, give, I think mostly the legislature was trying to get this thing off of their hands. They were being uh, politically expedient for their own benefit at the expense of everybody else. Well, that might be something that taxpayers and voters want to discuss with their legislators. If yes. Thank you. Andrew Walden, Hawaii Free Press, available 24-7 at hawaiifreepress.com. Thanks for being with us. Aloha. Listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelii Akina. Are we overfishing our waters? Longline fisheries have reached their limit for catching big eye tuna here in Hawaii. Andy Slavin, one of our researchers here at the Grassroot Institute, brings us the story. We're here with Grassroot researcher Andy Slavin. Welcome. Hello, how are you? Good. Now, Hawaii just recently ran out of its catch limit for big eye fish is that right yeah big eye tuna correct so what does that mean um th- that uh, we can't catch any more of these fish yeah so um the fisheries will allow a lot a um, catch limit and basically once the uh it's typically in pounds and once that once that uh pound limit is reached for that type of species of fish then the fishing must halt until the next annual catch limit a pound limit meaning if one person catches too many fish, then that person isn't allowed to fish anymore? Or is, does this apply to the whole state? Uh, it's applied to the whole state. In fact, um, it's applied through the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission, so it actually applies to most of the Pacific Ocean. Okay, so Hawaii has a catch limit, and that means that if in total all of our fishermen and fisherwomen uh, catch too many fish, then we have they blow the whistle and we have to all get out of the water and uh, stop fishing for these big eye tuna. Is that right? Uh, yes, except um, there's some discrepancy and leeway for uh, the Hawaii longline fisheries because they kind of have a deal with the commission where they can take some of the catch limits from the um, closely located territories. Okay, so normally um, 
this might apply to the states, but now when we talk about um, other parts of the Pacific Ocean, we're kind of uh, swapping uh, trading cards in a way. Um, we're trading you this and you're trading us that, and they're trading us their share of the fish. Is that right? Uh, yes, pretty much. Um, however, there is some uh, altercation that comes up. It's kind of a backdoor underway mining of uh, overfishing, if I, if I may. Okay, so those who are concerned about um, trying to keep in line with the state um, catch limits um, might be concerned about this um, sort of backdoor way of getting some more fish. Yeah, and it hurts a lot of the local fishermen because uh, they have smaller boats and can't travel as far as the Hawaii longline fisheries can. So it's kind of a backdoor way for a larger group to be able to get away from this catch limit. Okay, but um, even even without that, we still have a problem with overfishing our waters. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of the times the catch limit won't be... Uh, the limit will be, uh, by the time it's over, it'll be over the limit most of the time. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of overfishing still. What does fishing look like in Hawaii when it comes to this, um, like, for example, in January? Uh, basically, you'll get a lot of fishermen going out and catching as many fish as possible. And not only does that lead to short-term overfishing, but it can also be uh, fairly dangerous. Okay, so in January... Fishermen are allowed to begin that year's um, catch limit, but uh, you're saying that they rush rush out there and they overfish uh, as soon as possible. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty much a every man for himself, and uh, it creates a bit of chaos and uh, can definitely lead to some overfishing. Now, why is that happening? Why is there so much, uh, so many people running to the water to fish in January? Well, I think that it's mostly a systematic failure of the catch limits. Um, if you look across the world and even across parts of the U.S., they have something called a catch share, which is uh, what many environmental groups see as a more sustainable way of fishing. Oh, wait a sec. Even before we get to that, I want to get to why do so many fishermen go out in January to try to catch so, so much fish? What's the incentive to just try to catch as ma as many fish as you can in January. Uh, it's a competition thing. They want to get as many fish as they can before the limit on the sh on the fish is set. So the more fish you can get in that time period, no matter how much you overfish, it profits you more. And if you don't fish, then you miss out, and eventually the catch limit will be reached. Uh, for example, it's already been reached on Big Eye Tuna, and it's only July. I see. And uh, what would a better way to do it be? Uh, well, if you look across the U.S. and even the world, you'll see something called a catch-share, which a lot of environmental groups see as a more sustainable way of fishing. Okay, and how does this catch-share work? Uh, it will allocate um, essentially property rights to fishermen and fisheries who will then be able to uh, buy, sell, and share their catch-shares. Catch so it's applicable to uh, cap-and-trade for carbon emissions, However, we're trying to reduce overfishing and not pollution. So I'm a fisherman, and under this system, I would go out to the water, and for one year, I could catch a certain allotment of fish um, for the year, 
And if I run out of that allotment, then I can't fish, but that doesn't prevent anyone else from fishing that year. Is that right? Yeah, it's a more stable system that will that would allow um, fishermen to safely go out and they're guaranteed that amount of fish. So they're not, not everyone is rushing out at once or um, overfishing immediately before the catch limit is hit. It's very sustainable. I talked to a fisherman the other day who said uh, if we had this kind of system in Hawaii, then he would wait to fish in until uh, December or November when the price of tuna goes through the roof because because uh, the supplies run out at that time. So it, you're saying it might even out the uh, distribution uh, in a way. Yeah, you could see uh, more stable prices. And for fishermen, it allows, allows the uh, their business interests and aligns that with long-term stability because they are tied to that ecosystem and they need it to survive, essentially. So you're seeing a more stable version, which would possibly stabilize prices as well. Okay, but getting away from prices in the economy, what about the environment? I mean, would this have uh, a negative impact on the ocean? No, in fact, it, uh, in most fisheries that have established catch shares are actually seeing a more sustainable version of their fishery. Um, like I said, you won't have everyone rushing out and immediately overfishing. Um, everyone's allotted a certain amount, so if they want to leave the fishery, they can sell their 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 share or um they can buy into it uh depends how it's allocated but it's actually a lot more sustainable and assuming that uh, the environmental factor is a big problem currently where we're overfishing our waters in january and february and march um, having a more even distribution might uh, replenish the supply of fish because now you have uh, just more fish in the water um, all the time yeah, you definitely have an incentive to replenish the ecosystem because it benefits you. So it ties the ecosystem and business profits together and uh, into a sustainable method. Okay, and uh, what, what do environmental groups that you've talked to uh, think about this? Um, environmental groups are very for it. Um, the only issue that they see is the allocation of this system which is set up in many different ways, and I think it would have to be unique to Hawaii. For example, in Alaska, they allocated um, a large share to the native population, and then they share. It, it's mostly a historical context, but um, it, there's many other factors that can be taken into consideration. So, uh, assuming that it's allocated properly, then most environmental groups see it as the best way of fishing. I see. But then the question is always who gets to have the fish. But uh, anyways, that's a question for another day. Um, thanks so much for the research into this matter. And uh, um, maybe, who knows, if we uh, implement this, maybe we'll see more fish. Yeah, that's the goal. Thanks for having me. Andy Slavin is a researcher at the Grassroot Institute. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelii Akina.
Whenever Grassroot Institute goes forward with commentary and analysis on the taxes here in the state of Hawaii, we need expert knowledge. Uh, you can't get any better knowledge than that given out by the Tax Foundation of Hawaii, who is headed by, which is headed up by Tom Yamaschika. Tom is a tax attorney and also the president of the Tax Foundation. Let's listen to a conversation I had with him recently as we talked about some of the implications of the interference being put into the Maui hospital transition. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back, Ali. The state legislature passed a law in, in which uh, they awarded the, a severance package, or at least they proposed the awarding of a severance package for the employees who would no longer be uh, under the contract for the, that the unions had. And the interesting thing is that Kaiser had actually hired back about 95% of them and about 5% had taken the option of retiring. Yet the legislature passed the severance package for benefits and for salary uh, to cost yeah, maybe $40 million or $60 million. Uh, uh, $40 million is the is the number I heard. But basically the, the idea was you, you, you have people who are no longer going to be state workers. Right. Okay. So uh, they have been progressing through what you know, you and I know is, is a very, very generous retirement system and a, and a very, very generous system of health benefits, that, that's going to stop. They're, they're no longer going to be able to progress toward that. If they haven't vested in it, they're not going to, you know, it's, it's basically a train wreck for them. So can we take care of them is the question that the legislature was trying to answer. And so uh, this, I, I understand uh, they were they were trying to answer that question and give these people relief whether or not they found successor employment with with Kaiser. Right. Okay. But, but the reality is that the, the package Kaiser offered does provide the salary and the benefits and uh, is a a package that is at least comparable. So, in essence, the need is no longer there, but still the the uh, challenge goes forth. The, the the unions still desire to get that $40 million plus severance package and our legislature passed it, our governor opposed it. Let's, let me ask you this, why did the governor oppose this package? Well, there are a couple of different reasons. Uh, the basic one was that it, w it would cost too much. The second one was uh, an issue that um, ERS's attorneys had identified in uh, what they call the last minute, but basically uh, was that the uh, adoption of this particular severance package uh, would disqualify ERS from uh, from federal tax exemption. Okay, and and so so let me let me uh, I guess kind of you know, take a step back. But before you do that, the two reasons were first of all the governor felt we just couldn't afford it; it was too costly. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it would jeopardize the status of the ERS in terms of its nonprofit status before the IRS. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Continue, Tom. Okay. So, um, let me uh, start off by saying that when you have pension plans, uh, they're protected by a number of, of different f uh, federal rules and regulations, not only in the tax code, but also in something called ERISA. Uh, which, which is a, a labor law that's designed to protect um, 
uh, pension plans so that they, they will uh, continue to deliver benefits even after the employees that earn the benefits have, have left the company. I mean, you know, how, how, how horrible it would be if, you know, somebody works, you know, for, for, for a company for 50 years, leaves the company and, and then the company goes bust and there's no more, uh, no more retirement plan. Right. So, so uh, there are a number of qualification requirements that have built up both in the tax code and, and uh, in labor law over, over all of these years. Now, uh, now you've heard of, of a uh, 401k plan. Right. Okay. Now, what, what, what 401k means uh, is there is a section of the tax code called Section 401k. And, and what that does is it provides requirements to a situation where uh, you have a, an employee benefit plan that provides you a choice of either you take cash now or you put it in the plan to, to take out later when you're retired. Right, and your tax bracket is lower, obviously. Your, your tax liability would be lower. Then. Or at least that's, that's the theory. The, yes. Yeah, you can't predict the future, but, but, but that's the theory. Okay. Okay. 401k uh, is basically for um, uh, for private sector. Okay, uh, and there are provisions in it that say that it doesn't apply to government, and it doesn't apply to government uh, defined benefit plans. All right. Okay, and that's the issue here, because the uh, the benefits package that was in the bill that the governor vetoed and the legislature overrode, making it law, uh, would give the, uh, the separated employees a choice to either get some benefit in cash, or if they declined that, they would have enhanced benefits in ERS. So this is a practice one would expect to have in a private plan, but with regard to the government plan, that that's not part of the, the, the legal option. Is that what you're saying? Right. Okay, so we have already established that the solution that the, is sought by the, the legislature and the unions is something we can't afford. But secondly, it's got some legal issues that, that jeopardize the, the status of the ERS. Now, we've only got a couple minutes left. So, so your, put so your crystal ball to, to work now and tell us what are some of the problems that we're going to potentially face with this decision. Okay, if the IRS holds that ERS is not uh, a tax-exempt organization or not a tax-exempt uh, employee plan, then a couple of things can happen. One is it's got to pay tax on its investment income. In, in taxable year 2014, or fiscal year 2014, it made $2 billion. And that's just one year? That's one year. So we would ha go and back and be held liable for the taxes due on the investment income of the fund. That, that could be exorbitant. I mean, that would be incredible. Yeah, I mean, the, the tax on $2.1 billion is, is in excess of $800 million. So, that, so that's what would come out of the fund, go back to Uncle Sam, and we wouldn't get that for our workers anymore. So in, in essence, if we don't have that money available, it deepens our unfunded liability. Yes, it does. Wow, and what's another consequence before we leave quickly? Uh, that. Uh, the employees would be presently taxable on contributed amounts to ERS to the extent they're vested. So, for example, if you're fully vested 
an amount goes into ERS, you get taxed now. And and employees are not anticipating this, so they'll they'll have a, they'll have a surprise at the end of the year. In the end, that I mean, ultimately, that's not good for these union workers to put get into a situation like this where they have a surprise tax liability. Oh yeah, they'll they'll be they'll be uh, once they find out what the surprise is, there'll be consequences, and I'm I'm not sure what they're going to be, but they're not going to be good. Well, Tom, thanks for pointing that out, and uh, I'm going to thank you for being on the program today. I know you've written this up, and it's available at Tax Foundation. What's that website? Uh, TFHawaii.org. TFHawaii.org. And also, Tom's work is available at the Grassroot Institute. If you go to the Grassroot Institute website, grassrootinstitute.org, uh, you can read about the, this, ins, this situation where we've passed a law that is both unfunded and potentially illegal. Uh, interesting goings-on at the state legislature this year. Uh, we'll be back to talk about more of this and what else is happening in the state of Hawaii. I'm Kili'i Akina with the Grassroot Institute. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kili'i Akina. In a free society, we need to be able to make choices. And one of those most sacred choices is how our children are to be educated. Wouldn't it be great if you could send your child to the school or program of your choice rather than the government's? Well, that's very difficult to do here. Regulations prevent families from sending their children to schools other than the one chosen by the government. But what happens when more choices opened up? Aaron Leaf, a researcher at the Grassroot Institute, lets us know. We're here today with Aaron Leaf, a researcher at the Grassroot Institute. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. You did some research on a new model that would help a lot of students in Hawaii. Uh, what is, how does that model work? Well, they're called education savings accounts. And to understand how they work, first you have to understand how the DOE funds the schools right now. Okay, so we're talking about money. This is all about um, money for education. Exactly. Okay, so how does the Department of Education fund school currently? Well, currently, there is a per-pupil amount, which is $11,823. So if a student goes to a school, uh, the school gets $11,823 for that student. Now, in the current system, if a student leaves the public school and goes into a private school, the school that they were going to is still going to receive that money. Okay, so currently... Um, if I send my kid to a private school, my local school still gets the, the money, the, my local public school still gets the money as if my kid were still going there when actually he's uh, going to a different school. That's correct. Okay, and how is education savings accounts different? So education savings accounts make that money available to parents by putting it into a restricted use savings account which means that it can only be used for educational purposes. Um, but outside of educational purposes, there's not a lot of limits. It can be used for private school, tutoring, educational therapy, home-based learning, any, any educational good or service. Okay, so instead of the money going to the school, it goes to the parent. And the parent can spend it on many different types of education that they, that they choose. That's right. Okay, so what about people who say, well, then this is taking money away from public schools, um, maybe that need, desperately need a lot of this money? Well, 
the beautiful thing about education savings accounts is that in Hawaii, they could actually help fund the DOE. Okay, so um, how is that? If the, if the money uh, goes to the parents, then how could that help fund the DOE? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the per-pupil funding is $11,823 per student. Now, in Nevada, where they also have education savings accounts, um, the students receive 90% of the per-pupil funding, and the school maintains 10%. Okay, so as more and more kids leave the school, the school gets money and uh, to work with with less students. Exactly. And what's particularly uh, good about this system in Hawaii is that the average cost of private school in Hawaii is $7,500 a year. And the per-pupil funding being so high means that we could set our ESAs at 75%. And that would mean for every four students that left the public school system to go to private school under the ESA program, uh, the public school system would essentially get an extra one student worth of money. So you're saying we're almost paying double what the private schools cost for public education. That's correct. And if we take a fraction of that and give it to parents and families and children to choose their own schools, then that money could easily be used for private education or other options. That's right. Now, what about people who say, well, this is uh, unconstitutional because it's government paying for something like religious schools or other things? Um, isn't this unconstitutional? Well, the ACLU did bring that up in Nevada, and the Nevada Supreme Court ruled that ESAs are constitutional because the money is going into an, an account, and the government doesn't have any control of how parents spend that money. Okay, so instead of the government paying for it, this is parents paying for it. Right. And uh, that makes it constitutional. Now, what about uh, people who say, yes, but uh, public schools are so much better than uh, other options of education. Um, What about that? Now we're going to be sending kids to alternatives, which may not be as good. Well, ultimately, um, the parents are going to make the best decision for their child. Now, the good thing about private education or just education outside of the public sector is that parents have more control over their child's education. If they're not happy, they can leave schools. They can leave their home-based learning program and find a new one that meets the requirements that they, they want. So students actually are at an advantage when they are outside of the public school system as far as choice is concerned. And what do you think when it comes to this model of education? Is, is it uh, going to help a lot of people, or do you think there's problems with it? Well, I personally believe that it will help both sides. Uh, studies have found that when students move from public schools to private schools under um, fun, state-funded programs, Uh, the public schools that are near the private schools start showing higher test scores because now these public schools have to compete to keep their students. Competition inspires quality. Exactly. And uh, we're seeing quality go up um, as uh, children and students leave the public school and uh, there's a lot of competition going on. Uh, Did you see any success stories yet in the states that have uh, adopted education savings accounts? Uh, Well... So far, in the states that have adopted education savings accounts, four out of the five are mostly for special needs, and Nevada's started very recently. 
But as far as the special needs students are concerned that are under the education savings accounts programs in the other four states, uh, it's, it's only been success. And in Hawaii, this change to education savings accounts or maybe addition of this model would only have to happen uh, once um, because we have a state-run system of education. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Well, thanks so much for uh, bringing us this information, uh, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Aaron Leaf is a researcher at the Grassroot Institute. short break we'll be back with the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Aquina. Hi I'm Ken Schooland. I'm an economist teaching uh, at Hawaii Pacific University. I've been living here since 1979 and I'm a strong supporter of Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. I support the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii because they're the only ones that have a really independent eye as a watchdog against the legislature on public policy, uh, keeping a careful watch on the public officials, uh, looking out for the consumer, the taxpayer, uh, the business person in in Hawaii, uh, to see to it that um, there's a respect for individual rights in the islands. For more information, visit www.grassrootinstitute.org. listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Aquina. Last June, Senator Brian Schatz submitted a proposal to expand the National Marine Monument known as the Papahanaumokuakea. The expansion would give the federal government control over Hawaii's waters. Dr. Kelly Aquina, president of the Grassroot Institute, shares this insight into the matter. In many ways, the debate over the expansion of the Marine National Monument called Papahanaumokuakea is a model for everything that can go wrong in Hawaii politics. Unnecessary division, stoked by ethnic, racial, and historical issues, pushed forward by an environmental movement that holds disproportionate influence in Hawaii, often heavily driven by mainland interests. Then, struggling to make themselves heard above the chatter are the small businessmen and women and families that will be most affected, in this case, Hawaii's fishermen. Senator Brian Schatz has asked the president to quadruple the size of the monument, which would make it the largest protected marine area in the world. Schatz has secured the support of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs by endorsing a proposal that includes special access to Native Hawaiians and gives OHA, quote, co-trusteeship, whatever that means. The proposal is sure to find strong support in Washington, D.C., where the environmental lobby is strong and OHA is experienced in advancing its own interests. Unfortunately, the longline fishermen who will see the exclusive economic zone, what we call the EEZ, around the greater Hawaiian island cut by more than 50 percent don't have the same lobbying power in the nation's capital, although Grassroot Institute is there working to educate Congress on this issue. Fortunately, there are a few leaders speaking out against this proposed expansion. 
Former Senator Akaka, along with former Governor Ariyoshi and Governor Cayetano, recently wrote to President Obama urging him not to expand the monument. Their letter expresses one of the biggest problems with the current proposal, and let me quote it for you. We oppose the proposed expansion of the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument. Native Hawaiian rights and Hawaii state rights have not been considered, and there is no transparency in this process. No economic impact study was taken to determine the impact of this proposed expansion. The fact that such an extreme action is being contemplated without any serious study of its economic, social, legal, or cultural impact on our state is simply astounding. The lack of transparency evident in the process is disturbing, but so is the lack of long-term thinking. Hawaii has a history of being used as a testing ground for different political interests, but this proposal takes things too far. We cannot follow a path that could have such a serious impact on our state without a more responsible approach. The expansion plan must be put aside until a full, impartial assessment of its effects can be completed. That was a perspective from Dr. Kelly Iakina. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Aquino. My friend Ken Skulland is one of the leading educators in free market economics. Uh, whether you're a child or an adult, uh, you'll learn a lot from his wonderful book, Jonathan Gullible, A Free Market Odyssey. That's available online. I will tell you how to get it later on. But first, let's listen to Chapter 2. Welcome to another adventure of Jonathan Gullible. I'm Ryan. And I'm Ron. As you may recall, we last left Jonathan Gullible on a remote Pacific island after his boat was blown far off course by a terrific storm. Eager to learn about the inhabitants of this island, Jonathan wandered toward a town and noticed a well-dressed man kneeling in the street, trying painfully to shuffle along on his knees. Jonathan offered a helping hand, but the man brushed him aside, saying, No, thank you. I can walk okay. Using knees just takes some getting used to. You're okay? But why don't you get off your knees and walk on your feet? It's a minor adjustment to the tax code. The tax code? What's the tax code have to do with walking? Everything. The tax code has recently been amended to level the field for people of different heights. Level the field? Please stoop over so I don't have to shout. Thank you. You see, the Council of Lords has decided that tall people have too many advantages. Advantages of tallness? Oh, yes, yes. Tall people are always favored in hiring, promotions, sports, entertainment, politics, even romance. So the Lords decided to level us with a stiff tallness tax. So tall people get taxed? We're taxed in direct proportion to our height. Did anyone object? Only those who refuse to get on their knees. So you walk on your knees just for a tax break? Sure. Our whole lives are shaped to fit the tax code. There are even some who have started to crawl. That must hurt. Yeah, but it hurts more not to. Oh, oh. <laughs> Only fools stand erect and pay the higher taxes. So if you want to act smart, get on your knees. It'll cost you plenty to stand tall. So ends another bizarre episode in the life of Jonathan Gullible. JonathanGullible.com. Ken, that is such a delightful story. Every time I hear it, I chuckle, but uh, then I start to cry when I realize <laughs> what's going on. How did you get the idea to write about the tall tax? I was having a conversation with an accountant one day, and 
it wasn't much of a conversation. It was just how he was recounting the tax code to me and how it shaped his life. And I thought, my gosh, there's nothing much that this guy does that, that isn't dictated by the tax code. Well, they reduce your taxes here and do this. And I thought, well, my gosh, people really do respond an awful lot to that sort of thing. So he was not going to make any decisions in his life uh, unless, of course, they went along with the tax code or he got some benefit. Uh, how common is it that taxes actually do shape behavior? Oh, it's pervasive. Every politician knows that by raising taxes on something, they're in, uh, they can discourage behavior. And by lowering taxes or subsidies, allowing subsidies, they can encourage other kinds of behavior. They, they do it all the time. But consider what the hypocrisy is this. They they put on a sin tax, for example, to discourage smoking, you know, by uh, a cigarette tax. But but what are they doing with income then? They're discouraging work. They tax your interest on your savings. They're discouraging savings. Uh, all of these things are discouraging everything, you know, but they, uh, they feel fine doing it because they get inducements from people who want more tax uh, encouragement and people who don't want, they want to punish their friends or their enemies and stuff like that. That sort of thing is all the time played in the political arena. There's certainly a pragmatic value to using taxes to shape behavior, but it raises some ethical questions, wouldn't you think? Uh, For example, uh, who is it that should determine what is right and wrong and good and moral? And should it be our government trying to raise funds that actually determines what sin is and what it isn't? Uh, what are your thoughts about this from an ethical point of view? That's such a good point, Kili, because we all the time talk about being a free society and people being free to make their own decisions in, in their life. And yet, all the time, uh, the government intervenes with the force of taxation uh, to manipulate our behavior and shape it in a way that uh, leaves us less free, you know. And people a lot of times fall for it. They go for uh, the inducements that are given, but it it really makes us a less free society and leaves us in the hands of politicians who we always say we, we, we didn't want to have that kind of control. In fact, that's why this country was founded, to be independent of, of uh, political leaders and to have uh, pursuit of our own lives. We're telling the world about this, and yet we behave with a tax code that's so complex and onerous that that it's it's hard to really think of ourselves as as free people anymore. The impact of taxes on our lives and the way it shapes behavior, as illustrated in your story of people being willing to crawl around on their knees rather than pay the uh, the tall tax, it shows the real power that, that the government has uh, in order to shape behavior or threaten people. But ultimately, that's very much at odds with what you and I believe about human autonomy, that one of the greatest values is that we be autonomous, we be self-ruling, and that's at the heart of uh, something dear to you and me, individual liberty. Yes, and that uh, symbolism was intentional, and you can really lower your taxes by crawling. You know, and of course, that's what the politicians want you to do. They want you to crawl to them in their uh, arena down at the state legislature and beg for a tax break here or a tax break there. When, in fact, that empowers them. Why should the citizenry be crawling to them? We are supposed to be the, the masters of the politicians. They're the public servants. But and yet they, they behave. It's just the opposite. You go down to the legislature and you do some testimony before and there. Who do you think are the rulers and the servants? It's the ones who sit up high 
Uh, everyone has to stand for their entry or they have to uh, obey their schedule and their timeline. You get one minute to testify in front of them. Are those really the, the masters of society or, or slaves to politicians? Invariably, taxes become a tool by which to promote ideology as well. Uh, in your story, it's uh, not thinly veiled at all. <laughs> there, there's a certain ideology being imposed by the tall tax, which says there's a certain unfairness that some people are born into this world shorter than others, and some people are born taller than others, and it's the role of the government to equalize all of that. The Economist magazine one time ran a, a story on um, uh, severely height-restricted individuals of the male persuasion, uh, shrimps, uh, saying that, they, um, that the one best predictor for politics, the one thing that guarantees who's going to be most likely to win in an election, 23 out of the last 25 presidential elections, was the taller person. So people do have a, a, you know, a preference for tallness. Uh, women towards their their mates, the um, high, people in hiring, people in in promotions. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a, a natural thing uh, that people tend to prefer uh, tall people over short people. So of course, it's in the political arena to say, well, we're going to equalize that. We're going to tax someone who's taller than another, which is which is like saying we're going to tax somebody who works harder, and we're going to tax somebody who who is more innovative and uh, uh, to, to equalize it with people who are l l less working less hard or, or uh, with less innovation. Ken, the uh, creative story of the tall tax comes from one of the chapters in your book, The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, of Free Market Odyssey. And in the commentary edition, you've selected a quote from Franklin Roosevelt, uh, though you give a caveat there that he may not be the favorite person you quote. But in any case, let me read that. Uh, we and all others who believe in freedom as deeply as we do would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. And those who defy the government's manipulations stand proud. <laughs> well, that's that's really true. I think that the heroic figures in America's among America's founding fathers were people who all defied the laws of, of King George the Third. They rebelled against his taxes. They rebelled against his control over society. And um, and you know they would have been all lawbreakers at the time. Uh, but they were the heroes uh, of today because of what they established as a basic principle. And I think we've lost sight of what those principles are by kind of ignoring um, uh, the value of, of human freedom. Ken, thanks for the free market economic wisdom today. <laughs> Thank you, Kali. We're in studio with Ken Skulland, author of Jonathan Gullible, A Free Market Odyssey. He's a professor of economics at Hawaii Pacific University and a grassroots institute scholar. Well, that's another show for this week, and I certainly hope you've enjoyed it. More than that, I hope you've learned a little bit about individual liberty, free markets, and limited accountable government. The Grassroot Institute wants to be your independent think tank, doing research and bringing influence to bear upon building a better Hawaii. Until we see you next week, ehana kako, which means let's work together. Let's all work together for a better economy, government, and society. Until then, malama pono. Aloha. You've been listening to Grassroot Institute of Hawaii with Dr. Kali'i Akina. Join us every Monday at 7 a.m. 
If you'd like to hear today's show or leave a comment, go to grassrootinstitute.org or call 591-9193. Grassroot Institute is Hawaii's leading independent think tank working for a better economy, a better government, and a better society. Mm-hmm.